So we're going to go ahead and get uh, seated. If I can get the panelists to come on up and take their seats for our, our case discussion. Um, I wanted to just um, uh, make a couple of statements. One is some of us started to ask about uh, program evaluations, because um, I realized that many of us, me included, are uh, having problems taking notes um, with the online program. Uh, I have it in good faith that even if you're 20, you may not be able to do it. Um, and so the program evaluation is gonna be sent to you electronically. Um, and so we appreciate if you can uh, send that back to the IAS USA office when you see it. So don't worry about any paper um, at this point, um, but if you can fill it out electronically, it will also help you get your continuing education uh, credits and help us plan future programs. Um, second of all, the federal poverty level uh, for a single individual is 11,490. You can do the dollars a year. Uh, you can do the math. That means 138.8% is the grand total of $15,856, which won't get you a place to put your head in San Francisco and most of our, many of our communities. Um, so with that, I would like to go ahead and introduce uh, Dr. Michael Sag. Again, needs no introduction, I think, to this audience. He's a frequent um, and uh, revered visitor to the Bay Area, professor of uh, medicine, University of Alabama, who will start the case presentation um, discussion. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Steve. Okay, Dr. Eric Dar and I are going to be um, co-moderating both this session and the one later today, and the idea is to have fun with this. Um, I'm missing the, oh, there it is. Um, and, and so we're going to keep this lively, and we're going to try to use the entire panel. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Donna Jacobson, who's here from the Bay Area and is, works at the prison system, and uh, welcome. So let's get started. Oh, all kinds of conflicts here. So everything I say is conflicted. Just, you know, roll with me. Okay. So we're going to talk about initiation of therapy, both when to initiate, what to initiate, a look at differences in CD4 strata, and articulate the public health benefit. So let's start with this case. 30-year-old guy shows up because he got a routine insurance exam. Uh, they found him to be positive for HIV. Uh, no real medical history to speak of, no medicines. We'll start therapy if you tell him it's a good idea. So he's going to be a good patient. We'll take the medicines regularly. So his viral load is 30,000, CD4 count is 650. Would you recommend starting therapy? Go ahead and vote. You're entering a place of time and space. Just entered the hospital zone. Ah, 81%. Commentary, Dr. Montana, would you do that in Vancouver? Uh, yes, we would, uh, because we are very adherent to the uh, yes, USA guidelines, right? <laughs> ah. See, that's why we put Donna Jacobson on the panel, although it's a different Donna Jacobson. Um, anybody on the panel do would do something different than the majority of the audience? Okay. Uh, looks like we're headed. It's interesting. You know, last time I think I was at San Francisco, it, this meeting was probably about six years ago, and this would have been about a 20% response. So clearly, uh, things have changed. Yeah, Chip. You know, I, I would agree here in San Francisco I'd make that comment, but I also think we have to take into account the rest of the world uh, when we talk about 
this test and treat uh, model. Uh, if you're in a place like Mozambique, where the where the capacity is the healthcare system in terms of the number of people you can get through, every person like this you treat, you're excluding someone who needs to be treated more urgently. And so, in places where the capacity is there to be able to do this, I think it's fine. You're not going to do anybody any harm with the. You're very unlikely to people harm with the currently available drugs. But if you're in places where the drugs aren't so good, where the capacity is limited, uh, this hype about test and treat is killing people. And I think it's very important to put into consideration that you can only really do this, this treat this kind of a patient when you've got the other people who should be in line first taken care of. Right. So that that's uh, it. Obviously, depends on where you are. Maybe with the Affordable Care Act, we may have to have some pause as we readjust a little bit. So let's let's change it a little bit. Um, 30 year old man who was thrown into jail to see Dr. Donna Jacobson um, and was found to be HIV positive but also found to be a paranoid schizophrenic and doesn't want to take any medicines never ever under any circumstances. So you convince him to take his antipsychotics. His viral load is 30,000. At which point do you kind of say, you know, dude, come with me on this. Um, let's go ahead and vote. His name is Herman Munster, this guy. He's got a son named Eddie. Whoa. All right. So let's start with, let's start with Donna. Um, was this someone, have you ever seen a patient like this? Never. Well, <laughs> all right. I'm sorry I can't be real world for you. Well, I actually worked here at the San Francisco jail as one of the HIV providers for a couple of years, and this was a very actually typical patient. Um, and it, you know, it, there's a lot of variables involved. How long is he going to be in custody? Um, what is going to be the transition to the community? Um, certainly getting him stabilized, uh, his mental health stabilized was important. Right. And we had a, we have a lovely program, I believe it's still in place here, called Behavioral Health Court, where they work with the patient, inmate, and linking to care and monitoring very, right. very closely. Yeah. So it really, there's a lot more variables. So you're going to have to assure some sort of follow-up, but there's still going to be, what, what, how did you answer this? At what, where do you kind of push the panic button and say, wow, I really need to do something here? For this guy, this gentleman, I would probably wait. I, well, what if it, so the question is, at what CD4 count, it, 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 let's say he came with a CD4 count of three, would you still wait? Oh, no. Okay, so that's what, that's what I, kind I, of we're asking. I think those other variables are actually more important yeah. at, than the CD4 count. Yeah, so it changes the urgency. Dr. Treesman, he's one of your patients. I don't know why. Um, tell me about schizophrenia and HIV. Well, I'll tell you about schizophrenia. You guys have paid for a very, very expensive study called the Katie trial. And what it showed after $60 million is that schizophrenic patients don't take their medicines. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I could have done it for $49 million, but it didn't ask me. <laughs> but this, one of the things that you might think is counterintuitive is I like to start these patients earlier rather than later because they're going to screw up. Earlier on their ARVs. Early, earlier on ARVs because I want them to have more opportunities to screw up and for me to intervene. If you wait till 200 T cells, the next time you see this guy is at 50 T cells and he's screwed up. Right. And I, I, I like him to start. I like I like to start early and I like to in, in I like to you know try to integrate HIV and psychiatric care. Th that's a great point and, and that's really the reason I brought it up. All, everything you heard is important. Right? It's not it's, it's sort of common sense to a degree. It 
depends on the follow, it depends on the biology, but, but obviously there's a, what I was trying to get across is that our ideal is maybe treat everybody regardless of C4. I'll talk about some exceptions in a minute maybe, but, but there's, a, there's a gradation of urgency, isn't there? And we've known that for a while. So let's just go through some of the reasons. Dr. Duak talked talk to us about the biology. Um, this is one I've shown for years, but I won't belabor it, but antiretroviral therapy interfering with this vicious cycle. Um, and then you heard an awful lot about inflammation and disease. This is one of the slides that, that Danny showed. And also, by the way, this is going to vary from your syllabus because when I realized last night that we had such a great panel, I cut out a lot of the slides to make sure I had more interaction with the panel. So you have the slides in your packet, but I'm just going to hit a couple of the highlight slides. And this is the one that I really wanted to focus on that he showed you earlier from Peter Hunt. Um, Danny, um, you told us why there's inflammation. Let me get specific. Um, let's go back to these elite controllers and the acute infection. Um, you would treat people with acute infection, and you've already said sort of why. What about the elite controller who has undetectable virus, less than 50 on no medicines? Um, is that that's sort of where I think where most <coughs> of the controversy is now, isn't it? Um, I go back to what I said earlier that um, it depends what you measure, how you measure it. So first of all, make sure that the virus is really undetectable. If it's not really undetectable, treat. So the long-term non-progressor with a viral load of 750 in the blood, you'd treat? CD4 they, count because, of 800? Because, they, because they'll progress. Yeah, okay. So now we're, it's sure enough, as we say in the South, less than 20. Um, now what? CD4 count 800. Then um, you have to look at the disease course. And if, if they're fine and they're stable, then I don't think you're going to you're not going to do much with anti adding antiretrovirals. Okay, if their CD4 counts are not great or falling or on a downward curve, sure. then I start think you start thinking about the new anti-inflammatory therapies that we're talking about. Okay, what about soluble, what about soluble CD14 or IL6? If they were elevated, if you measure them, would you think yeah, so, to measure so them? Yes, so those are all at the moment in the in the field of research, but I think they're going to come more into normative clinical practice. Uh, soluble CD14, D-dimers, IL6. So if those were elevated, even in the setting I just said, you'd, you'd lean towards treating? Get them in a trial of an antifibrotic or an anti-inflammatory or something like that. And we know where to find those in this area. Okay. Um, better tolerated medicines. Yep, everyone in the audience knows this. Randomized controlled clinical studies. There's one underway called the START trial. Uh, it's now pretty close to being fully accrued. They increased their N. Interestingly, even though most of the people on this side of the Atlantic in the U.S., would vote heavily, like you all did, towards treating almost anyone. That question is, start above 500 or wait to uh, 350, I think. Um, in Europe, they're more towards treating 350, but in that study, over 65% of people enrolled are from the U.S. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, Chip, you want to comment at all? Or? Uh, no, I mean, I, I actually don't believe that these trials add much, to be honest with you. Uh, we, uh, there are too many, I'm sorry, I'm just <laughs> speaking the truth, um, but uh, there are other uh, the other people who believe in them, and um, so, we'll wait for the results. I think we, um, they're based on the premise there is an average patient, that uh, you can come up with uh, the answer, is the answer 410 CD4 cells or 363 CD4 cells? Depends on too many other variables that we've been talking about already today. And I don't think a 100 or 200 million dollar trial is going to come up with an answer that gives you a durable result. As the medicines get better, uh, the CD4 cell count threshold might change. If we'd done this study 15 years ago like people wanted us to, 
with D4T, uh, you might never want to start antiretroviral therapy. So I guess my point is, I think the uh, these large simple trials uh, are really not simple, and they give the answers that aren't applicable to individual patients uh, at great expense. I'd rather spend the money on other questions that are more useful myself. But, uh, right. So the other private citizen is not an NIH employee. The, the other the other point is that cohort data across the board has really uniform answers. It's either not showing any statistical difference with a trend in favor of earlier intervention or an actual statistically significant difference for starting early versus delaying. And my view of the randomized trial is, quite honestly, that if there's only three years of follow-up, that's not really, really what we're trying to answer, is it? We're looking for 10 years, and I'll get back to that in a minute. And, and, you, and, my, and the other thing, none of these are going to take into account the prevention benefit exactly. that Julio talked about and you're going to talk about. So as long as that's an important factor, then none of this is going to matter. Right. Another thing that we haven't talked about today yet is that those people who are able to achieve a CD4 count above 500 in our practices have better long-term outcomes. And so the ability to get to above 500, straightforwardly, is if you start at a higher CD4 count. So, yeah, kind of duh, but there you go. The other question that I heard from the other side is that, well, maybe resistance will happen earlier if you start early. And in fact, it's the opposite. There's more resistance associated with starting therapy late. That may be an epiphenomena of people showing up late or maybe less likely to be adherent to their regimen. But regardless, those are the data. Um, and then the public health issues. And Steve, I want to turn to you on this. And um, you want to comment on this slide. I think everyone's kind of seen it. But the 25% of people in the US who are not aware of their status are responsible for well over half of the new infections uh, per year. And we know the, we know the uh, HPTN and ACTG study that showed that. So uh, you want to comment on how you, how you factor this into your decision making? Well, I think it's critical that people get HIV screened, which is why I think it's, you know, thrilled finally when the US Preventative uh, Task Force finally recommend, yes, we should, we, we should be doing HIV screening, and it is going to be covered under health care reform. Uh, people need to know their status. It needs to be a normative part of, of uh, what we're doing. And the availability now of the home test kits, although they're not selling a lot because they're pretty darn expensive, yeah. I think is also at least an added. How do you feel about the home test kits? Is that a good thing if somebody finds out they're positive with no support? I think that this slide that shows that you know we this is the root of uh, a lot of our new infections. and. We need to do anything that we can do in order to get people tested. It's not the ideal way. I wish people would get tested in a, in a center. But however you get tested and find out that information, there's a lot of support up for you once you find your right. positive. And Chip? I think the other thing is that uh, I appreciate Julio's talk, but if you actually look carefully at his slide about when the incidence of HIV infection started declining in Vancouver, it was three years before the Vancouver conference. And when you, looked at, when you look at places like Taiwan, where they made HIV care available, HIV incidence decreased by 50% the next year. What's that about? It's because people know that if they're tested, uh, if they are infected, they can be treated. And if you're tested, you change your behavior. So a lot of the benefits we see by making HIV therapy more widely available, even if it's just to say anybody who wants treatment can get it, uh, helps cut at, these, at the red part of these bars. And, and that uh, has a very big impact on behavior which is the second part of this whole uh, decreased instance thing that we're seeing, I think, with increased penetration of, of therapy. It's not just the drugs themselves, it's behavior. And motivating people, motiv uh, motivating people to be tested is part of that. Yeah. OK. And I think the, so I think what's happened just kind of uh, 
among the treating providers is that we were all leaning toward, for all the reasons I've already said, earlier treatment. When you have the public health benefit added on top of that, it kind of tips the scale uh, pretty fully towards earlier intervention. And I would just say common sense. And what I mean by that, somehow or another, and you can think about to the history, if you ask the question, how did we get anchored to CD4 counts? Where did that come from? We all, you know, when do you treat? When do you start? CD4 count. Where did that come from? Well, it came from a clinical trial back in the day that I think, Chip, you were a part of, right? The 001 or 02 study from Burroughs Welcome when you were in Boston, I think, right? And, and basically was anchored to that because they thought the AZT might kill people. And so they had to have a um, equipoise around placebo versus AZT, and of course, the AZT worked. But here's how I look at this case. This guy has a CD4 count of 650 and a viral load of 30,000. He's 30 years old. If you elect to treat today, he's on therapy, let's say he lives to be age 75 or higher, right? Or you wait till CD4 count of 500 when he's 35. Here we're talking about 40 years on therapy. If he lives to age 70, 35, what in the world is the difference? Come on. We're talking about five years out of 40. Is that going to make a difference? Not really. If we were talking about treating them ever and not treating them, then we have a discussion. Then we have a randomized trial, but that's not what we're talking about. And no one seems to pull back and look at this, but the bigger question that I'd like Danny to comment on is what is the potential harm in this time period? And, and, and is this, what is the harm? And uh, so you got 30 seconds to tell us. The harm is a lot. Okay, speaking, that's great. Speaking as a bench scientist, biologist, I've never understood why we're treating the CD4 T-cell count with antiretroviral drugs, treating yes. the virus with the drugs. And the answer is what I was trying to say, it's historic for two reasons. One, because the original trial was anchored to CD4. And second, we didn't have viral load until 1992 or 93. But it's a viral disease. We're using antivirals. There you go. It, it's also, Mike, it's also historic based on the fact when combination therapy first became available and we thought early treatment made sense that we realized how flawed the early therapies were. That's right. So the early therapies sort of <coughs> put us backwards because of the toxicity and the fact that monotherapy with a nucleoside only works for 12 to 18 months and then it fails with not only resistance but with a recurrent viral replication that, that harms people. Although I still have a bunch of people I treated with monotherapy who are still in my clinic. And the, situa the circumstances are? Well, I treated those people with monotherapy and <coughs> all we had was monotherapy. In my patients for, you know, and their viral years. loads are undetectable. Yeah, their viral yeah. loads are undetectable, and they, they're, they're resistant to some things, but they're alive. And Dr. Duek would like you to add raltegravir to that. <laughs> if they're fine, leave them alone. Constant compression <laughs> the occasional person, though. All right, so the balance of uh, suggests earlier therapy. We've been through this. Waiting for a randomized trial uh, could well lead to harm, in my opinion. That, that I, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't do the study. But if you think about it, there's patients who I'm looking at who I'm not going to refer for two reasons. One, I think they should be treated now and they agree. Or two, I don't think they should be treated now and they agree. And the only people who are left in the middle to refer to the study are those um, I'm a little bit uncertain about, and that's who's probably in the trial. So quickly, let's go through another case. I want to turn it over to Dr. Dar. So this is a 42-year-old guy diagnosed a while ago, had several OIs. A lot of these patients in our practice, he's currently on Tenofovir FTC and boosted Darunavir. CD4 count now is 33. It had been as low as 6 back in the day, but three months ago it was 76. His viral load now is spiked up, but his phenotype is pan-sensitive. 
Anybody ever seen a case like this? <laughs> Dang, I thought I was being unique here. Okay, he refuses to take ARVs because he said, my grandmother took pills and she died. That's the way it said it to me. This is a true case. Um, what would you ask? What medicines do you want to take? When do, you want to, when do you think you want to take them? Or do you have your affairs in order? Go ahead and vote. He's living back in the Stone Age, I think. Okay, I'm going to turn this over to Barney Rubble, Dr. Treesman. Um, what do you do with a guy like this? Um, well, I mean, we see this. Is a, I, I've been talking about these kind of patients for a long time. Um, in Baltimore, the common belief is that Hopkins experiments on people, so you don't go there. So no, people don't go there until they're really dead. And then they are never heard from again because they came in too late. And I, I tell patients about that. This is a process with a patient rather than a, rather than a black and white situation or a yes, no. You start by talking about it. You gradually persuade them. You might give them things that might early on help them for prophylaxis. You might talk about other things that might help keep you from getting infected, antibiotics. You take this for a urinary tract infection. It's a really benign drug. And you gradually introduce the idea that the drugs, these drugs are much safer than they were a few years ago. You try to figure out what matters to the person and point them at Magic Johnson or whoever they can, right. they can relate to. And gradually you persuade them. But you're not going to usually persuade these people at first visit. They right. have to get to know you. Got to build some trust. Okay, let's move on to the next case. Um, Donna, do you see TB at all in your prison population? Uh, hopefully not. Um, they're tested quite frequently. Okay, let's say a new person comes in like this, this 34-year-old woman, and she's diagnosed on arrival with TB. Looks mm -hmm. pretty bad. She's also found to be HIV positive. Her CD4 counts 82, viral load 76,000. Um, she gets started on her four-drug regimen, and uh, the virus you test is wild-type. Now, her CD4 count is 82. <coughs> Do you recommend, well, let's see what the audience thinks, at what time after starting TB therapy would you start? And you have a bunch of choices here, and uh, I don't know is a fair question. That means you're going to look it up. Superman? Yeah, amazing adventures out. All right, all right. I think the audience mostly got this right. Um, any comments, uh, Donna, or you Get would agree? Yeah. yeah. So the question I think is, do you start it immediately, yeah. or do you wait two weeks or four weeks? I think um, who participated in those studies? Anybody on the panel? There's a couple studies in Africa, um, basically that. I think this has been parsed out too much, maybe. There was three or so studies that looked at different CD4 count strata. In essence, if somebody's like this and their CD4 count's less than 200, you don't have to start them right away, although some people would, but most people would sort of wait two weeks and see how they adjust to the four-drug regimen on TB and then add it. But if you wait till after four weeks for someone like this, their mortality is going to be higher. So you need to get their immune system straightened out a little bit earlier. If their CD4 counts are higher, say 350 on arrival, um, then you could wait four to eight weeks or so if you wanted to. But in my mind, I don't see any reason to necessarily wait beyond four weeks. Is anybody doing that? And, and the guidelines are sort of all over, you know, they, they said it just like I did, you know, if this, then that. I, I just think, you know, th there's not a whole lot of reason to dice this or parse this too much. That was really the point of, 
bringing it up. Uh, Eric, you'd agree? Yeah, I think you know we're dancing on the head of a pin a little bit, especially you know the data all strongly says less than 50 within two weeks. We're talking about 87. Right. So and yeah. the, and those you defer in, it's eight to 12 at the very most. So starting within the first two to four weeks is probably reasonable for most patients who are tolerating their TB therapy and in care. So this looks like a very familiar case that we saw at the beginning, and this is my follow-up question. Uh, same guy's back. His viral load's 30,000. It's still 650. Let's see how people vote now. This is the repeat question like we've been doing all day. Go ahead and vote. Get Larry David to check it out. Hello, Newman. Okay, so, whoops, there we go. So it looks like some people were a little bit persuaded to go a little sooner from the discussion, although a lot of folks were already there at the beginning. I will now turn it over to Dr. Dar, who's Director of ID at Harbor UCLA in Los Angeles, and he's going to take over from here. So really with that last question, we were looking to see whether we talked anyone out of early therapy, and the good <laughs> news is we didn't. Um, so let me go ahead and move on to the next case, and uh, this is more a what to start case. These are my disclosures. Uh, so we're going to discuss current issues related to when and what to start, recognize key factors to consider when switching therapy, and describe how treatment fits into prevention. Uh, so the first question really is more related to when to start than what, but the question is, which of the following is not true regarding the indications for starting therapy in current U.S. treatment guidelines? So it's recommended for people with HIV-associated nephropathy, hepatitis B infection, viral loads of greater than 50,000, or asymptomatic patients with any CD4 cell count. Go ahead and vote. Okay, nice distribution. And, you know, the reality, if you look at the current guidelines, the recommendations are to start therapy in virtually anybody, including asymptomatic patients, regardless of CD4 count. Uh, they've always focused on select situations where if you weren't going to start for all the reasons that were already described, that you should start for patients with HIV-associated nephropathy or hepatitis B. The viral load issue, I think, is clearly the softest, and when people have used a cutoff, They've used 100,000, but I think this is at lower relevance. And Danny, you talked a little bit early about the utility of viral load in predicting outcomes. Do you think it has a role at all in making the decision about when yeah, to start? Yeah, having viruses associated with outcome, but, but um, you can't draw a very good straight line between outcome and virus load, which is why you have to bring other things like inflammation in. Any other thoughts about when to start? We talked a lot about that already from the panel. I think the big change really is that CD4 is no longer the factor. It's driven by these other things. I, I would just add that, that I think that there are a couple of things that are almost medical emergencies. And so the HIV-associated nephropathy, it really matters to get that started quickly. High-grade proteinuria. I think the acute infection story, especially if they're in a FEBIG 2 or 3, which means they don't have antibody yet. They've got high-level virus, haven't truly seroconverted. Getting them treated now can help protect their gut, and then you can decide later to do what to do. So let me introduce a 49-year-old asymptomatic man who presents to the clinic after recently having been diagnosed. Uh, his has a history of hypertension, some chronic kidney disease with a creatinine clearance that's fairly stable at about 75 mils per minute, 
He's hepatitis B surface antibody positive, C antibody negative. His CD4 counts are running between 700 and 770. I got dyslexic, I think, on the way I set this up. His viral load is 30 to 50,000. He's not anxious to start therapy, but he's willing if you think it's necessary. Oops. So you encourage him to start for all of the reasons that were discussed, and it sounds like in this audience, everybody, or 85% or so of people wouldn't indeed encourage him to start. And he says he's definitely ready, has no concerns regarding his ability to adhere, is fine with once or twice daily dosing, and asking you what you would recommend. So again, this is a patient who's <laughs> simply ready, willing, and able to commit to whatever you think is best for him, and has no preconceived concerns about toxicity or dosing schedule. So I have summarized at the bottom some additional information so that you're aware of it. He's HLA-B5701 negative, if that's important to your decision, and he did have a genotype performed, uh, and it's wild-type virus. So go ahead and vote. And uh, perhaps I should have taken the time to translate these abbreviations to people. I hope most of the people in the audience are aware of our alphabet soup for antiretrovirals. <laughs> so it looks like the favored regimen was about 45% for nukes with the favorins, followed by nukes with raltegravir, nukes with the boosted PI, considerably less, and then a few takers for a rilpivirine-based regimen and uh, elvitegravir cobacistat. Uh, and I'd love to know what the something else is, but maybe we can come back to that. Anyone on the panel want to state their preference? Anybody? Everybody's confronted by patients like this all the time. Uh, we would have voted uh, uh, with the majority uh, the two nucleosides and the power. And, and reason in particular, Julio? Uh, well, um, the return of boosting uh, against the background of uh, maybe some uh, hypertension, uh, renal disease. Uh, I would stay away from the tenophobia as well, so maybe we would uh, use uh, back 3TC and uh, anifavirins. Uh, you could argue for raltegravir. In British Columbia, we have a strong preference to uh, protect the raltegravir for either particular subset of patients or for uh, uh, salvage, it, it has such a dramatic effect in our practice that... Uh, so that, that uh, hepatitis B, is that a, from a vaccine or is that easy infected? I believe it was a previous infection. And okay. immune, and so that might change your abacavir. Yeah, I, I, I thought... Uh, he's immune. He's immune. He's immune. He's Surface he's antibody immune, positive. So I, I, Surface antibody positive. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and then... Uh, um, the, the, you know, his kidney function makes the option number five not very uh, appealing to us. Uh, and then uh, repairing, we, we tend to reserve it for uh, uh, substitution, but uh, again, the tenophobia will uh, speak against it. So uh, I, I would be very comfortable with a Kivexa or a Bacavid 3 tcf average. Donna, what would be the first choice for this kind of a patient in the prison system? You know, uh, I pretty much agree with You know, with the patient, the, uh, the inmates, they're also very careful of having more pills or more than once a day just because someone else may know their status. Mm -hmm. We often use protease inhibitors in people who are in and out of jail a lot because they're, number one, forgiving, and number two, when people decide to 
sell their pills intermittently to buy drugs and various other things that happen in Baltimore, but not other places on the planet. Um, we 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 would prefer, we would prefer that they were that they weren't becoming resistant to efavirenz, which has a fairly low barrier compared to uh, protease inhibitors. We don't we don't see much protease inhibitor resistance in our population, despite their, uh, but we see plenty of efavirenz resistance in the right patients. The other thing to mention is depression, and um, uh, both uh, raltegravir and um, and efavirenz occasionally will cause depression in a patient. It definitely happens. It's not one of those things that never happens. It's also not one of those things that always happens. And it's so you have to pick your case. But if you have somebody who really goes off the rails when they get depressed, I always worry about efavirenz. And we couldn't analyze the data from our clinic to show any benefit because we know depressed patients, people with histories of depression don't get efavirenz in our clinic. We looked at that. I mean, it's just something we, we our clinic doesn't do. We see a huge number. Hard, it's hard to show one way or the other, but I, I worry about it. Efavirenz is also used at times. Uh, it's sold because of the high associated with it yeah. in corrections. Okay. Well, let me uh, change the case a little bit. Same story uh, as summarized at the bottom based on his T cell count, viral load, and some chronic kidney disease. Uh, but now he also is a smoker with multiple cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, dyslipidemia in particular, along with the hypertension and the renal disease. How would this affect your choices? So the same choices, a boosted PI, efavirenz, raltegravir. I'm not going to deal with the nucleoside part in particular here, mostly the third drug choice. We'll come back to the nucleosides. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so now we have to remember there's been a shift here. The main thing I would say is we went from about 50% the efavirenz-based regimen to about 50% the raltegravir-based regimen. Still not a lot of takers for rilpivirine or alvitegravir cobacistat. And Steve, on the end, do you have any comments? or? Well, I, I, I assume that people are doing that because of the, the data showing some cholesterol issues with the Steve of it. In my years of, of clinical experience, that's so mild. That's so, that's so small, and for me, it's the scale of, you know, I agree with Julio, I would definitely have done a, a Favarin's, a Bacavir-based regimen initially, and my concern, again, about starting a Reltegravir, particularly in somebody who's, who I'm, I'm just getting to know and, and worrying about their issues, the issue of resistance, and that's such a powerful drug I like in my pocket, and for me, that would outweigh, I would watch, if the guy had a big bump on his, on the Favarin's-based regimen, I might reconsider that, but... I would still go with the efavirenz first. You know, one thing I, I, when I said that the genotype was wild type, I should have acknowledged that we don't routinely do drug resistance testing for integrase inhibitors yet. Uh, but we have integrase inhibitors now as our options, include a preferred and alternative. Is there anybody in the room, by show of hands, that's routinely doing integrase inhibitor resistance in people coming into care for the first time? The Canadian. I don't Julio. see it. Just Julio. You are. How much are you seeing? No, no, no not so far. Okay. So, it, so your experience is consistent with the current guidelines. It may not be necessary yet, but obviously yeah, with it's, time. It's too early, and we, and we really use relatively little. Uh, so the exposure overall has been very small. Yeah. So I think that's consistent with current guidelines, but I'm sure it's going to need to be looked at, and with time may change. Yeah, Steve. Please. Yeah. 
I think we're still on reported cases at less than a handful. Okay, the next. So now, same story. Patient has multiple cardiovascular risk factors, chronic kidney disease, but a CD4 count is 50 and a viral load of 250,000. So his viral load now is well over 100,000, and CD4 counts are now very low, as opposed to having been high. Go ahead and vote. I have the similar options listed here. Oh, interesting. Now we have a very even spread uh, with the efavirenz, the boosted PI, and raltegravir. I guess perhaps what's changed most dramatically is more people using the boosted PI than we had seen in the patients with earlier stage disease. Uh, Julio, you're grinning. <laughs> uh, you know, so far you haven't pushed me any way uh, from my original uh, recommendation. I would have stayed the course. Uh, efavirenz uh, all the way through. There is no real... Uh, data there that would compel me to uh, make a different recommendation for this patient. Yeah. So I guess really the issue, particularly based on the response, is are there any advantages of PIs over efavirenz and raltegravir in patients with high viral loads versus low? Yeah, I, I don't think that there is data that uh, demonstrates that that's the case. Uh, we, I, I would agree that depending on the particulars of the patient, the resilience of the PI-boosted uh, regimens is huge, and, I, and I'm a, a very big fan of PI-boosted uh, regimens for that reason, uh, particularly in, in, in certain populations. Although, interestingly enough, uh, we see the same phenomenon whether they are IDUs or not. Uh, but, uh, but for the purpose of this discussion, the favorite uh, carries the day. And those boosted PI benefits really are not relevant to the baseline viral load. Correct. It's more the patient characteristics. Correct. And I don't think there is any data looking at the preferred options showing that boosted PI is better than the alternatives in patients with high viral loads. We, we certainly would not go real preparing, uh, but uh, other than that, the rest are uh, all acceptable. What about the abacavir? The what? Abacavir, are you well, still? Well, notice I didn't. Uh, we haven't gotten to the nucleosides. Haven't gotten to the nucleosides yet. Okay, yeah. all right, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So, same story. This is, I think, my last question, but the patient had a K103N at baseline. So, we now have the patient back to cardiovascular risk factors high T cells, low viral loads, but a 103N. Does this change anyone's recommendations? Obviously, I took efavirenz off of this so as to not embarrass anybody in the audience or on the panel. John <laughs> and ahead. I never see K103s in our patients because they're, you know, they're so compliant. So we don't, know, we don't know how to comment on this. Go ahead and vote. <laughs> so, 
So we got half boosted PIs, half Raltegravir-based therapy. Uh, about 10% rilpiparine. Mike, do you want to comment on what you would have done? Well, I, I would have probably gone with the boosted PI here. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously, rilpiparine is out for now. Well, it's out from the beginning because its viral load is over 100,000. Although we now went back to the low viral oh, load. Oh, we did. I'm changing it up. Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, well, rilpiparine could work, but the data from the original studies um, showed that it didn't work quite as well as a boosted PI. However, that study uh, was from all over the world, and a lot of those people had way more than just a K103N at the time. They had other uh, nucleoside uh, resistance mutations, so the backbone was weak. But I think in this case, I would probably still go with, personally, go with either the boosted PI or Reltegravir. So the reason I put this case in is because one of the issues that often comes up is can we be certain that there is no low-level nucleoside resistance that we're simply missing because of the sensitivity of the assays? And how confident can we be in someone who we know has acquired a resistant virus that they don't have, for example, 184V, which might have implications for using <coughs> rilpiparine or raltegravir-based regimen? Any comments from the panel as to how they feel about this issue? You know, I, I would agree with the comment uh, that Mike made. Uh, I, I would further say, as a gen, sort of generic approach to this problem, uh, we have an obligation to offer people a, a regimen that we feel is going to be 100% effective. And to say that the regimen may be effective, uh, you know, uh, you are taking a chance. It's the patient's life. I mean, the, the, his or her future will be condemned uh, because we are taking a chance. So taking chances is not appropriate. Meaning that, that we're going to try to repair it in case we can't get away with it. Well, yeah. Guess what? You, you didn't get away, and now right. you have a K65R, you have a 184 uh, uh, pan uh, non nucleoside resistance. That's not a joke. Yeah. There, now, 50, ACTG 5257, which is likely to close over the next few months, actually enrolled people uh, into a three drug combination that included either boosted atazanavir, boosted darunavir, or raltegravir. And they were allowed to come into the study if they had NNRTI resistance. Uh, so some information, it's hard to know how, how much, may come out of that study, depending on how many of those people got randomized to at least, in this case, the raltegravir arm. But right now, we really don't have much data. Steve? A lot of our discussion, I mean, I agree with the brilliant audience on this one. But a lot of the, our discussion has been about efficacy and tolerability does factor into it in the real world. And so there absolutely is a real role. You know, we haven't picked Reltegravir as an option as a group yet, but there are definitely patients uh, for whom that is the right option because the tolerability is, is so terrific, and they just can't tolerate that PI. They can't tolerate that NNRTI. Okay. So these are a list of what I think are some of the factors. Oh, Steve? Um, because obviously raltegravir is considered an option for first-line therapy. Um, many of us you know, think that another um, uh, integrase inhibitor, is it simply the rise in creatinine that we see? Um, is it the tenovavir because you can't take the elvitugravir, cobicisnet without tenovavir? I'm just curious to know what people's hesitancy is. Uh, to be honest, because there is some use of this combination sure. in the community. No, that's a good question. Well, I, I'll take that. I mean, I, I was leaning away because of the 0.1 to 0.15 elevation in creatinine that's going to happen because of the cobicistat effect on the proximal tubule secretion of creatinine. And, and even though it doesn't affect GFR at all, 
um, it, it messes with our ability to know when we're in trouble by an estimated creatinine clearance. So rather than even going there, knowing that his estimated GFR is going to drop from 75 to at a minimum 65, maybe 60, you're getting awfully close to where you might have to adjust. And um, I just would assume stay away from it. Uh, it may have changed the dynamic had I, this patient had a creatinine clearance of 90, for example. Yeah, that, that would have been definitely different. If you said normal renal function when you went to this new guy. That would have been. I think it changed a lot of votes in the audience. So some of the issues, um, patients' willingness to commit to therapy, baseline resistance, the efficacy data, tolerability, convenience, comorbid conditions, consequences of failure. I have that last because I do think it's actually become lower on our list, but it's still an issue. And, and really, since the beginning of combination therapy, all preferred options have now continued to be nucleosides with a third drug. And all of those were the options that I listed. Uh, but I know there's a lot of interest in looking at nucleotide sparing regimens. But all of the combinations continue to focus on this based on the data. Very briefly, I think these are the two pivotal trials that led to atazanavir and darunavir ritonavir uh, being preferred. Boosted PIs with lopinavir ritonavir becoming an alternative one. Not so much because of major differences in efficacy, although they certainly had favored the newer PI, uh, but more so, I think, tolerability, both from a lipid perspective and a gastrointestinal side effect perspective. Uh, this is data from 5202 showing very similar efficacy with atazanavir, ritonavir, and efavirenz. Uh, and this was true regardless of viral load. So again, one of many data sets that illustrate that the boosted PIs don't appear to have any real advantage in people with high or low viral loads over efavirenz-based regimen. Obviously, the issues are different with rolpivirine, where there does appear to be a difference. This is Startmerk, raltegravir versus efavirenz. Raltegravir, it's interesting because it's the one preferred option that's twice a day, and I think that's because of, in part, the efficacy and, and also, and perhaps to even a greater extent, the tolerability, and that it is one of the best tolerated medications that we currently use. And, and that's why it's considered one of the preferred options, even though it's twice a day. As I've been alluded to with rolpivirine and the pivotal trials that led to its approval, comparing it to efavirenz for the primary endpoint, virologic suppression rates were extremely high in both arms and non-inferior. The issue was that there was different driving forces behind the failures and successes, and that if you look at this, and I don't know if I can find a, Arrow. Is there an arrow? Maybe no, not. No. If you look carefully, you can see there are concerns with a higher rate of virologic failure in the rolpivirine, or in this case listed as 278 versus efavirenz. And this was counterbalanced in the primary endpoint in this T-lover type analysis by a higher rate of people discontinuing <laughs> therapy due to adverse events. And most of the virologic differences were seen in the high viral load group. And this has actually led to the change in the IASUSA guidelines where they now do have as a preferred option, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll come back to that with the, the nucleosides, but um, this has changed the guidelines, the indication in the package insert for rilpivirine, and that it's recommended for people only with viral loads of less than 100,000 for first-line therapy. And then this is the newer data for the recently approved quad pill with L-vitegravir, cobacistat, tenofer FTC, comparing it with either a first-line boosted PI or first-line NNRTI efavirenz, and these are the two pivotal trials. I think everyone is aware that 
in the current era, people are starting therapy earlier, so these trials included people who tended to have higher CD4s than our earlier trials and a lower percentage of people who had viral loads of over 100,000. The other characteristic of these trials was that they only enrolled about 10% women. So there are some limitations in extrapolating the data from these trials to real life. This was the data, the primary endpoint, comparing it with the fabrins, showing very high rates of virologic suppression uh, and non-inferiority. There was differences in tolerability, so perhaps if this patient didn't have issues related to their creatinine clearance, some of the advantages from a tolerability perspective can drive the decision-making in one way or another. CNS toxicity, not surprisingly, be more common with the fabrins. Nausea being the only thing that occurred more commonly in the quad regimen than in the efavirenz-based regimen, and most of this was pretty mild symptoms. This is the data comparing it with the boosted PI, also extremely high levels of virologic response and non-inferiority. And from a tolerability perspective, the only really difference was this benign ocular icterus seen with boosted atazanavir as opposed to seen with the quad. And the number of people who discontinued due to renal events was very small. There are some lipid differences as well. So in considering patients who have cardiovascular risk factors, you can see there is a considerable difference in the lipids for total cholesterol, LDL, and HDL, all increasing more with the fabrins versus the quad. As usual with these types of comparisons, with few exceptions, the total cholesterol-HDL ratio is not different because the increase in LDL and total cholesterol is balanced by the increase in HDL. When compared with the boosted atazanavir, there was actually no difference for cholesterol, the biggest difference being an increase in triglycerides in the atazanavir arm. So again, all of these characteristics go into the decision-making as far as first-line regimens based on the unique characteristics of the patient. And then Mike alluded to, and there's been a lot of talk about the issue of what happens to creatinine and calculated creatinine clearance. This is data from the two quad studies, comparing it with the fabrins or boosted atazanavir that show this predictable increase that occurs in the first two to four weeks of therapy that's associated with the way that creatinine is handled by the renal tubules, but not an effect on actual creatinine clearance or glomerular filtration rate. So it's an artifactual increase that occurs early on, and the challenge then is to be able to define when a real increase that may be due to nephrotoxicity is occurring over time. And that's why the drug was originally studied in people who had creatinine clearances of over 70, and that's the group that it's approved for, people with creatinine clearances over 70. And it's primarily because it's very difficult to interpret and manage people in that lower range, where they may dip below the 50 threshold that might require uh, changing the dosing. So the question for the audience is which single factor has the greatest influence on nucleoside choice? Efficacy, renal concerns, cardiovascular concerns, availability as part of a fixed dose combination, guideline recommendations, or something else. This doesn't necessarily relate to this case, but it can. Oh. Well, I expected to see a spread. So renal concerns and availability as fixed-dose combination were the highest. And I think this is becoming, will become perhaps increasingly relevant, because right now all the fixed-dose combinations have for FTC, but it's anticipated that dolutegravir, which is under review by the FDA, will likely get approved early this summer, 
and their plan is to have this as a fixed dose combination with the back of your 3TC. So the dynamic may change. Comments from the panel about this? Just Anyone? Have to take So in somebody who has normal renal function, the decision to choose tenofovir versus abacavir, especially if you have an alternative fixed dose combination? Efficacy. Anyone feel so efficacy? Yeah. You know, I, I, think, I think that the way we approach it anyways is that the tenofovir is the uh, default uh, option. And then if there are issues <laughs> pertaining to the patient, uh, then uh, abacavir gets into uh, into the mixture. And now, of course, the dolutegravir fixed dose combination may uh, change some of that, but uh, uh, I cannot predict how it's going to change it, though. Anyone on the panel where the, the general sense is that tenofovir isn't sort of the default nucleosides unless there's a reason not to use it? Okay. So very briefly, let me just talk, touch on the nucleoside issue. So there are head-to-head -head comparisons with tenofovir, FTC, and abacavir. This was 5202. Again, it's important to note the third drugs in this study were boosted out of Xanavir and Efavirenz. So you can't necessarily extrapolate this to other third drugs. But there was a highly significant difference in virologic failure amongst those who had viral loads of greater than 100,000 between the two arms, with tenofovir doing better than abacavir. It is important to note that both did very well, even in this high viral load group. There was just a significant difference. Uh, and it occurred regardless of the third drug. The high viral load factor was true with efavirenz and was true with bostadatazanavir. And this was one of the main reasons why abacavir had dropped from a preferred to an alternative regimen in some of the guidelines because of concerns of efficacy with a lot of footnotes saying that this is particularly an issue in people who have high viral loads. Uh, this is data looking at abacavir 3TC versus tenofovir FTC in the low viral load stratum. So it really is just a factor in the people with the high viral loads. There is no data, including from this very large trial, to suggest that people with low viral load have any efficacy difference with the two different nucleosides. And then there was another randomized control trial of these two nucleosides that actually did not show a difference, and that was the HEAT study. Importantly, the third drug here was lopinavir-ritonavir. So there was a different third drug which would account for perhaps one of the biggest differences between the studies. The other ones were study design issues. And they did not see a difference based on higher low viral load, although there was a suggestion here that there was a higher group that had virologic failure in the back of your 3TC group than tenofovir FTC with the higher viral loads. And this is illustrated by these colored bars in red, green, and blue being higher viral load groups. And then finally, the other big factor that came out, and these almost occurred simultaneously, was the data from the DAD study demonstrating uh, increased risk, particularly of people with recent or current abacavir use for cardiovascular events, but even a modest risk in those with just cumulative exposure uh, for cardiovascular <coughs> events. But this data has been conflicting. So I think when we think about the nucleosides, um, there are clearly some potential efficacy differences all of the data is currently with adazanavir, ritonavir, and efavirenz. No difference seen with lopinavir, ritonavir. And I'm not going to show you the data right now with dolutegravir, again, that's under review. But at least in the analysis of their study, they have not demonstrated a difference based on viral load in those who received abacavir 3TC with dolutegravir. So it may be there are differences in the study and limitations in the numbers of people with high viral load. But it may also be that the third drug matters. 
So we'll need to pay attention to this. And I think this is reflected by the new IAS USA guidelines, which actually say that in people with low viral loads, using abacavir with adazanavir, ritonavir, or fabrins may be an acceptable alternative. And the reason for this is because we don't really know the answer on the cardiovascular events. There are many studies that have not seen a relationship between abacavir and cardiovascular events. And we know that tenofovir is associated with a greater decline in bone mineral density and concerns about renal function. So there are reasons to be worried about these nucleosides as well. And these are just the DHHS preferred guidelines. Hopefully you're aware, all aware of what are the preferred options and the alternative and acceptable regimens. At least for now, all of the preferred options include tenofovir FTC. And the most recently approved quad pill is listed as an alternative, at least for now. And these are the IAS USA guidelines from last summer. The big difference being what's highlighted in yellow. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Mike. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to get through this pretty quickly because I'd like to leave at least a few minutes of time for just open discussion because you've got a panel here and you probably have some burning questions. So I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, this is a guy who um, is found to be HIV infected. Viral load is 56,000. CD4 counts 340. And here where I say seropositive, he's, he's surface antigen positive um, for hepatitis B. His exam is um, pretty much normal. His ALT um, is 1.7 times the upper limit of normal. Uh, other labs, as you see, and an HBV DNA is quite high at about uh, 60,000 or so. And he's surface antigen and E antigen positive. So which backbone would you use here? Let's go ahead and vote. Low viral load, no cardiovascular risk, looking to have some neuropathy. Um, no one went for D4T. <laughs> Not for a while. <laughs> okay, so 87%. So um, Chip, you want to comment on this? This is a e-antigen positive guy. Uh, no, I think the audience picked up on it very well. You don't want to expose uh, hepatitis B to 3TC or FTC by itself because although those drugs have activity. They uh, have transient activity. Resistance is selected 16% per year in co-infected patients as opposed to mono-infected patients where it's slower. And once you've selected resistance uh, with uh, FTC or 3TC, second and third line resistance <coughs> appears much earlier when you then expose the patients to tenofovir or uh, other drugs for hepatitis B. So it, it really is a uh, uh, spoiler to uh, tickle the virus with 3TC or FTC by itself. As everybody again knows, when you then develop resistance with a higher CD4 cell count, you can end up with flares as HPV replication picks up. And uh, if you're not thinking about what's going on, uh, be misled by, uh, by a big uh, spike in LFTs. Right. So everybody pretty much got that. I'm going to spare you, except to say in the mono-infected population, you can use entecavir or tenofovir with relatively equal efficacy. What's remarkable is that as we've followed patients like this out further who do not, who are not co-infected, that there's actually not only suppression of HBV DNA, as you see here, but there can actually be some, uh, some reversion of uh, E antigen uh, that can happen over time. And that's, that's demonstrated, uh, I believe, here, uh, at least surface antigen reversion. And um, that, that heretofore had not been seen. So the take-home point, if you have somebody like this who's mono-infected and you happen to be treating them, once you start them, most people would agree to continue, although the 
AASLD guidelines are ridiculously confusing. Uh, you pretty much want to continue, I would think, for the most part. Okay, let's stop there and... Uh, Can I ask you a quick question, Mike? So the yeah. big, in the panel, the big challenge that we encounter, not too often, but more than occasionally, is the patient with significant renal insufficiency mm. with hepatitis B. And, so, uh, yeah, so and you don't want to use tenofovir. Or you're, you're worried about using yeah. tenofovir. Um, I don't recall at the top of my head if entecavir has drug-drug interactions with, um, I'd have to sort of look that up. I don't know if anybody knows about that, whether you might use a different backbone or a different regimen and then treat the hepatitis yeah. B with something other I think you can get away with entecavir. You do need to dose reduce, but there's not a drug interaction yeah. issue. And and it does have a higher genetic barrier to resistance than lamivudine. Well, absolutely. Well, so that's what I'm saying. Tenofovir yeah. and entecavir, at least in the mono-infected patients, yeah. is clearly, are clearly the drugs of choice. So maybe I can just open it up, and if you have questions, maybe just come to the microphone if you're comfortable doing that and address it to any one of the, the panel members if there's uh, any kind of case or situation. We're going to come back to the panel later this afternoon, but... We have time for a couple of questions if you if you'd like. Uh, Mike, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, we have had a, a, a handful of people with very high viral loads in the millions uh, who have been treated adequately with good adherence and have not suppressed adequately. And since then, uh, I'm uh, the, I don't I'm not aware of any formal uh, uh, clinical trial data, but uh, we are of the impression that. Uh, that the standard triple therapy may, be, may fall short in those uh, people. Any thoughts? You're talking about the HBV? No, no, I'm talking about the HIV. HIV. So the HIV levels are high. You treat I'm, I'm and they don't... It's really high, you know, over half a million to a million or thereabouts. And they don't fully... And they, and they come down very nicely and then yeah, they fall... But they never, they they never, never completely suppress. They never I'll give you um, something to bounce off here and then I'll turn it to Danny because like, my view is that in the gut, there are those cells, the, the latently infected cells, that can be stimulated to, even if there's no de novo replication, there can be stimulation to start producing virus. And if there's a large pool of latently infected cells that can be stimulated to periodically release virus, that's how I would attempt to explain it. But um, the, the, the question scientifically is what's the connection between a cell being infected, the burst size of variants produced Correct. by that infected cell and viral load. And, and we don't really know that. The one thing we do know is that plasma viral load is an extremely bad measure of the reservoir of infected cells, productively infected cells in the body. So I don't know what that plasma viral load means. I, I think um, in, for the patient, what's important is the size of the infected cell reservoir. For the community, it's whether or not that viral load translates into um, infection of other people. Um, so I, I think there are lots of factors here. But, but again, for me, the way I think about this is before you think about doing anything else, get the virus down as low as possible and just add more drugs. And then, you know, anecdotally, Danny, and I, I, we've had this experience, and it, it forced us to stop logging these people. We've had these patients where we've done added, and, you know, they get down to two, three hundred. And they don't go lower. And we've added raltegravir or added etravirine and raltegravir because we were concerned about adding one drug even with the low viral load, and nothing happens. Right. So you know, I think you, that that is the subject for study. And you know, ask is that virus that two three hundred? Um, um, is it infect? Is it infectious virus? For right. Example. You know, what, but find but out scientifically what's going coming on. back to Julio's point. I mean, I, I think we've all had cases like this, right, where they're sort of hovering at seventy. 
thousand or maybe a hundred thousand, I'm not sorry, 70 copies or a hundred copies after being in the millions initially. And I tend just to let them be. And, and, and so far that's kind of worked out. I, do you change yeah, them? No, no, I agree with that. Uh, um, but those are patients that uh, we often see and they don't have any evidence of viral evolution in the sense that there is no resistance. What I'm talking about is people who have very high baseline viral load who, who behave normally, except that they didn't reach an undetectable, and then they, they rebound with resistant virus. Yep. That's a bad. Right. Is, is anyone with the really high viral loads, are you using more drugs to start therapy? That's, uh -huh. that's what I'm thinking. Um, so, so what are you doing, Julio? Well, the, you know, we're, I, I think that uh, uh, there may be a rational for those people to get more treatment, uh, to get a fourth drug, and mm -hmm. rategravir, for example, or, are, Just you, are, you do, are you doing that clinically? That's what I would do in a patient with over a million copies. Okay. So we have a couple of questions from the audience. We'll like, try to get them quickly. We have three right now, so let's see if we can get them all done. So this um, uh, person says that they like abacavir in general over tenofovir because of the, they like the idea of being able to sequence in case there's failure. Um, any comments about that? So in other words, using abacavir first to kind of hold tenofovir off just in case there's failure down the road and you might have something to salvage with. Normally Steve. When you, normally when you're filling a tenofovir-based regimen, you don't have, you don't have resistance. If you're, if you're watching it early, you have resistance to your, your 3TC or your FTC, or FTC, but not to your tenofovir. So I don't, yeah. for me, that's not a, uh, an issue. Okay. I mean, my personal answer would be I, I'm going to, especially on the first regimen, I'm going to treat for success. So whatever it is that I think is most likely to work, and we kind of said this earlier, you don't want to go with a maybe. Let's go with what we think is going to work. So if we think whatever regimen it is is going to work, go with that. And, you know, 15 years ago we used to treat for salvage because it was happening more frequently. Um, Julio, go ahead. Have you ever seen a back of your fail, personally? Sure. We've had people who failed back of your they, they do okay, but the, the point is we'd like to avoid the failure in the first place. Yeah. So, Julio, uh, this and is... No, there is some cross-resistance amongst people who actually fail with resistant mutations for abacavir. It's not completely innocuous. Right. So, Julio, uh, this is a follow-up question for you. Um, you, you mentioned that you uh, sort of use or save raltegravir for salvage. What do you think about saving a boosted PI like, say, darunavir for salvage? Uh, well... <laughs> Yes, uh, for us it falls in the same category, and uh, we tend to, you see, uh, darunavir and raltegravir emerged at a time in which there was no unmet clinical need in first-line therapy. And so uh, the reality is that the early positioning of darunavir and raltegravir was such that it, it, it terminated our salvage clinics. They disappeared. I mean, mm -hmm. I used to be full-time salvage, and now, now I have nothing to do, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm delighted. <laughs> Uh, You're now so an internist again. To stop the epidemic. Uh, but the, 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 the fact is that because of that, uh, we are careful how we use raltegravir and darunavir as options for initial therapy. And, uh, and, and we use them liberally, but, but as alternative to a favorite and antisanitaritonavir. Okay. The last question is also for you. Apparently, you're the lightning rod of the panel. Um, that you mentioned that you have some patients who have been successfully maintained on monotherapy. What drugs or drug are you typically seeing on monotherapy? I, I didn't say that. Oh. No, I didn't say they were successfully maintained on monotherapy. I said there were, I have patients who were on monotherapy for a long time before we had ah. and who are still alive today. And I, 
point, the point I was making is that if you didn't treat those people back then, they didn't get here. Yeah. But you know, since you're at, uh, at it, uh, the, the, I was recently at a meeting uh, with a bunch of Europeans, particularly the French. Uh, there is a huge push in France uh, to de-emphasize triple therapy in favor of moving people to return our boosted PIs uh, as, a, as, a, as a strategy for sustained uh, uh, control, long-term control, and, and reintroducing nucleosides if they need it. I don't like it. Uh, I, I have serious concerns about it, yeah. but uh, they're doing it. Right. So you get the honor of the last question. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Montaner, you were saying that uh, you have these patients with very high viral load that you start and you see the nice curve down, but that they don't fully suppress and then they come back with rebound. And that's and and you also said that you're usually using a tripla as your first line. And I'm sort of wondering if when you're using something with efavirenz-based regimen that has a lower threshold for resistance, and you have a lot of virus that takes a while longer to suppress, so the efavirenz is putting drug pressure on a lot of virus that stays around, if that's actually causing the, the potential for more resistance to be around. Yeah, I, I, let me just uh, qualify that. Uh, these are limited number of patients, and I've seen it both with efavirenz and with atazanavir-ritonavir uh, as the initial regimen. I think it's more a function of the very high viral load. Uh, and, uh, as we see a gradient, you know, if you look at the all trials, people that are old enough will remember, in the two versus three drug trials, we actually got a proportion of people to fully suppress if they had less than 10,000 copies at baseline. So there is a, a nice sort of graduation between uh, baseline viral load and how much therapy you need to go to full suppression. I am hinting to the fact that at, at a million copies, three drugs may not be enough. And it's independent of the regimen, at least for the main, uh, two main uh, options, NRTI and return boosted PIs that we have. Julio, not to be a pill, but when they did those two versus three studies, they were using 500 as their cutoff. For, for the uh, no, but we retested samples. Uh, yeah, we retested samples, and it's, it's true. You, you, you know, if you have very low viral load, even uh, trisiver works, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, so potency and baseline viral load are connected. We wouldn't recommend it, but, but uh, you know, if you look back, you'll find it. Good. I think um, it's my job to wrap up the morning session here. I want to thank our speakers and thank our panelists this morning for really what I think was a really fascinating uh, morning. I want to thank all of you for your questions and participation as well. I mean, it's hard to, for me to kind of come up with some of the salient points or impressions of the morning. Um, I, want, I think Dr. Doak gave us a lot to think about. Um, and if I can interpret, I think that we will see some uh, improvement in the health of our patients with HIV not necessarily with just one or two better drugs, but with multiple interventions to try to help not only control the virus in places that we maybe don't monitor very well right now or monitor at all, but also in some of the other processes such as inflammation. I think based on some of the comments on the slides is that we don't, there's no single intervention at this point that we should all take back to our offices or clinics and just intensify or just add a cyclovir or whatever that we don't know. It may involve multiple uh, interventions. 
But there will be additional interventions that I think we'll see not only um, as we treat early um, for our patients newly diagnosed, but also try to help build the immune system on our patients who've been infected for 15, 20, 25 years and still have persistently low CD4 cell counts. Um, Dr. Montagnier really showed the success of an organized approach to a community around the treatment uh, of HIV and its impact on decreasing um, uh, the uh, incidence of new HIV infections. And it really is a challenge to all of us. Um, it was sort of brought up, I think, with Steve O'Brien, is that we will see resource allocation. And I think everyone has brought up the issue about what are these interventions, what's the, who pays the price? Um, if we start to, to treat more hep C in our communities, do we lose some of our HIV-related resources? Uh, we're not doing very well with syphilis um, at the present time as the, as the uh, incidence rise, continues to rise in many communities, certainly San Francisco and the Bay Area, based on the number of CMR reports I have to submit every week or every month to the health department. Um, and there are issues that we've talked about. We went through a whole number of cases regarding uh, what drugs to initiate, ignoring the fact that there will be pressures to, to uh, prescribe uh, uh, drugs that are not brand. Um, some of us are already face, facing those issues where some of the components of our fixed combination medications are generic, and there is a cost savings to health plans, to health care dollars. And so we haven't yet reached an understanding about how these factors all play into the way we practice medicine today, and certainly based on the comments this morning, how we'll be practicing in the next two, five, or 10 years. So again, I think that we've been left with more questions than we have answers in all these areas, and I'm really thrilled by this, and thank you again all for your participation. Lunch is a hosted lunch in the foyer outside the door, um, and then we will reconvene at, I believe, five minutes to one. Is that one or one o'clock? Uh, reconvene at yeah, 12.55, so reconvene at about five minutes to one. Thank you very much. <laughs>